strive to worship him on this uh, Lord's Day. Let's take our Bibles to Hebrews chapter number 7. Hebrews chapter 7, we'll just read verse number 25, and then we're going to jump to Acts 16. But reading here first in Hebrews 7, 25, we're going to find our anchor verse. We'll return to here in a little bit, and then perhaps even dwell upon or use for thoughts next Sunday, as God has given us some that we may pursue at his direction. Hebrews 7, verse number 25. Wherefore he, that is Jesus Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Keep in mind here the word uttermost. It's not a word that we hear used very much today. It is passed from common daily use, but it should be a word that strikes us here this morning strikes us with power, strikes us with uh, grace and with mercy. And so just keep that in the fourth thought of your mind as we turn over to Acts chapter number 16. He is able also to save them to the uttermost. So come to Acts chapter 16, get into its context here. We find Paul and Silas on the missionary journey. We're going to jump in reading here in verse number 16 and read down to verse number 34. We find here some familiar events taking place that we want to think about this morning concerning that word uttermost. To the uttermost. Acts 16, verse number 16. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel possessed with the spirit of divination met us which brought her masters much gain by soothsaying. The same followed Paul and us and cried, saying, These men are the servants of the Most High God, which show unto us the way of salvation. And this did she many days. But Paul, being grieved, turned and said to the Spirit, I command thee in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And he came out the same hour. When her masters saw that the hope of their gains was gone, They caught Paul and Silas, drew them into the marketplace under the rulers, brought them to the magistrates, saying, These men being Jews do exceedingly trouble our city, and teach customs which are not lawful for us to receive, neither to observe, being Romans. And the the multitude rose up together against them, and the magistrates rent off their clothes and commanded to beat them. When they had laid many stripes upon them, they cast them into prison, charging the jailer to keep them safely, who, having received such a charge, thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. In case you didn't catch that, let's read verse 25 again. And at midnight Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God, and the prisoners heard them. And suddenly there was a great earthquake, so that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And immediately all the doors were open, and everyone's bands were loosed. The keeper of the prison, awaking out of his sleep, and seeing the prison doors open, he drew out his sword, would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. Then he called for a light and sprang in, came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas, And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved in thy house. They spake unto him the word of the Lord, and to all that were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night, and washed their stripes, and was baptized. He and all his straightway. When he had brought them into his house, he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. Now, upon reading these verses, digesting the landscape of the characters that we find here in this scene, it can't be denied that we witness the power of God at work to his honor and to his glory. 
This scene here centers upon the aforementioned Paul and Silas, these two workers for God upon missionary journey. They were out working for him in this time, in this town. We see they meet with some resistance. Now, if we are committed to the work of the Lord and we are uh, doing that work, we will from time to time meet with such obstacles. We will have resistance. We will because... Uh, the flesh and the world certainly aren't agreeable unto uh, the work of the Lord will stand against us. We see that it is never easy or agreeable uh, to either of those. Now part of the opposition here for Paul and Silas comes in the form of a woman possessed of a devil. That is, one of Satan's demonic forces had possessed this woman. Yes, that is possible. We see it many times in the word of God taking place and still is possible today and we see it here in opposition to the work that Paul and Silas were doing we see that they followed Paul and Silas and the woman had a message of her own we notice in verse 17 the message was these men are the servants of the most high God which show unto us the way of salvation now uh, one thing that the Bible doesn't always deliver on to us uh, uh uh, so that we can really see it the first time through and, and be able to get it is tone, right? We hear everything in a certain voice as we read it. Unless we begin to think about the context and see the motivations of those that are speaking more so than just a plain, flat reading. Because if we take those words at face value, that's a good message, isn't it? That's a good declaration. That's a good thing for people to hear. Uh, you know, here, these men have... Uh, the way to God, they have salvation. That sounds good. But no doubt, because this woman was possessed of a devil, that this was a great distraction to the ministry. No doubt, because of her possession, that it was said in a very mocking tone, that was subtracting from, rather than adding to, the, the, the ministry and the work that Paul and Silas were doing. And this was happening day after day. It certainly made it difficult for them and hindered the work during this time as they went through it, and you'll find that to be the case in your life too, that there will be people uh, at certain times that want to do the same kind of thing, to mock or to make it difficult for us to serve the Lord uh, in such a way. Now we see in verse number uh, 18 that after Paul and Silas had endured this for many days, Paul finally reaches the end of his patience. He had heard this, he had experienced the difficulty he had dealt with it long enough. And we see in verse number 17, or verse number 18 rather, that he commands that spirit that's in the woman to come out of her by the name and the authority of Jesus Christ. And we see he was successful. He was successful because he did it in the name and under the authority and by the power of Jesus Christ. And he had the ability to do that, uh, certainly being uh, an apostle. And the power of Jesus Christ could not be disobeyed or ignored by those spirits when they were commanded to come out they came out we see she came or they came the spirit came out of her immediately she ceased her behavior her life being changed for the better not having this spirit in her anymore that controlled uh, her uh, her thinking and her behavior that controlled her actions and her motivations but now she'd been delivered from that and that certainly is a good thing, right? I mean, that's a blessing. But you know what? There were some that didn't see it that way. So we see beginning in verse number 19 that those that made their living by this woman get upset. They get offended. They get mad. And we see that they direct their anger at Paul and Silas. Noticing here in verse number 19, And when her master saw that the hope of their gains was gone, they caught Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace unto the rulers. They directed their anger and displeasure at Paul and Silas. We see that this results in them being beaten, their clothes stripped from them, and cast into the innermost parts of the prison. All because they cast out a demon. All because they were seeking to do the work of the Lord. Things escalated here because of Paul uh, casting out this demon. Things were sort of out of status quo until that happened. But here we see these men who see their gravy train is gone, their ability to make money off this woman not happening anymore. She must have had the ability to 
somewhat uh, tell the future or predict things to a reasonable, believable uh, you know, level, and so they were able to make money off of that uh, or some form or fashion of that. And so when that ended, they were mad, and that resulted in Paul and Silas suffering for the work of the Lord and suffering for what they had been preaching and what they had been doing. Imagine this and how they felt. And they're being stripped of their clothes, beaten with many stripes, cast into the darkest part of the prison, sitting in the dark. I mean, just take a moment for that to sink in. That is so foreign to our day-to-day life, so foreign to what we expect, so foreign to what we think, so foreign to what we would ever consider to be even possible. But here we find these two men of God outdoing the work of the Lord, and that is exactly what has happened. As I... Uh, made some notes and came to this part, I just wrote the word wow beside it. Because that is such a a powerful thing to think about. Such a devastating thing in the flesh and something that we would avoid certainly at all costs. And Paul and Silas yet find themselves in this condition. How do you think they felt as they sat without their clothes, bruised from the beating, they took in the innermost part of the prison in the dark. How, how would we feel? How would we respond? Ask that question to yourself this morning, child of God. Those of us that are saved and members of this church, those of us that have the Spirit of God dwelling within us and have believed and trusted in Christ that are called to serve Him, how would you feel if you sat in that condition? How would you feel as you were in the dark and your body hurt and ached and perhaps was bleeding to a degree as you sat without most of your clothes in the dark, feeling mistreated, feeling uh, like it's unfair. How would you respond? How would you feel? How would you, uh, uh, you know, how would you, uh, uh, what would your emotions uh, be like? And how would you respond? Well, we see here as they were immobilized as well in verse 24, who having received such a charge thrust them into the inner prison and made their feet fast in the stocks. So not only were they without most of their clothes, not only were they beaten with many stripes, not only was their freedom taken and they sat in the dark. I say that because after things happened here, uh, a light had to be called for to see what the scene was, right? So they're in the dark. And their feet are fast in the stocks, meaning they can't even freely move about the little cell that they are in. And so... Picturing all of this, how would you respond? How would it sit with us? Most of us would, at least emotionally or mentally, be curled up in the fetal position uh, in tears. Uh, we uh, We would be very upset for ourselves. We would be thinking, woe is me, I can't believe this. Or we would be angry. We would be thinking, why did I ever do that? Or similar thoughts. But in verse 25, we see how Paul and Silas respond. And at midnight, Paul and Silas prayed and sang praises unto God. And the prisoners heard them. You know who else heard them? The guards. You know who else heard them besides the prisoners and the guards? The keeper of that prison heard them too. So here they sit. Freedom taken. Mobility taken, clothes taken, dignity taken, health taken. But you know what was still intact? What was still intact was their relationship with Christ. The Holy Spirit was unbruised. Still dwelling within them powerfully. And at this moment, instead of being angry at their fellow man that had uh, taken them without a cause, accused them without evidence and had thrown them into the prison brutally, instead of being angry at their fellow man, they were praying to their God. They put the focus in the right place. Instead of being, uh, uh, or feeling sorry for themselves, instead of saying, woe is me, I can't believe this is happening, they were singing praises unto God in their current situation in condition. That just blows my mind to really think about how they could do such a thing. How amazing, how blessed, how inspired. This was heard, as we said, and observed by all the fellow prisoners, all the guards, and the keeper of the prison 
whom we refer to as the Philippian jailer. We see that as they sing and as they pray, this has an effect because God brings forth a miracle. God chooses to display his power in this place. And as you think about Paul and Silas and their response to what they had done, and you substitute in there what we may have done instead, like I said, sort of curl up in the fetal position and, and cry for mama, so to speak. Uh, you know, if we had done that, or, or if Paul and Silas had done that, do you think God would have displayed his power so prominently and so greatly? You know, when we see God working and we see man working, God uses man as an instrument. He uses his people as an instrument, as a tool. And he builds here upon Paul and Silas praying and singing and puts an exclamation point on it as that last refrain of amazing grace fell from their lips. And a great earthquake sweeps over the prison. The power of God shaking it as only he can. And as the power of God came upon that prison and the prison was shaken we see in verse number 36, all the doors were open. And everybody that was restrained with chains, their bands were loosed. Suddenly freedom was within their grasp. Because all of that was gone. No longer were they physically restrained and held against their will in this place. God saw to it that this earthquake took care of all of this. And... Uh, made sure that everyone had the possibility of freedom. Now, in most prisons, under most circumstances, this would have resulted in a mass exodus. As soon as the opportunity came, one second later, everybody would have bolted for the door, uh, uh, not worried about anybody else. Everybody would have left. Everybody would have ran out and uh, tried to find freedom and put distance between them and that prison. But not here, not in this prison, because as we see here, the power of God that shook the prison and the power of God that released the bands upon the prisoners also stayed everyone in their place. Even though they were free, they stayed. Why did they stay? Why did they act against their very nature to flee? Well, that's only something God can do. To cause man to act against his nature or foreign to his nature, it's a work of God. These men would have fled. They would not have stayed willingly behind. God is at work here. And he is at work for one purpose and one purpose only. And that was because one of his elect was residing in that prison. And it was the appointed time to bring him to faith and trust in Christ. It wasn't Paul and Silas. They were already saved. It wasn't any of the fellow prisoners that we know of. Though it's possible some of them could have been saved as well. But we see that it is the keeper of the prison. We notice in verse number 27. The keeper of, this, of the prison awaking out of his sleep and seeing the prison doors open. He drew out his sword and would have killed himself, supposing that the prisoners had been fled. So the earthquake, the power of God being brought to this place, it woke up. Woke up the Philippian jailer. It brought him out of his sleep, is what it means physically. But there's also going to be a spiritual component here to his waking. But physically it meant that he had been asleep, trusting that everything was settled for the night. <coughs> and everyone was safely, securely uh, uh, put away until the power of God came upon him. He was expecting just a normal night. He was expecting just another day when he awoke. He was expecting all the prisoners to still be there until the power of God intervened. And then he's awoken to find prison doors open. He's open to see uh, a change laying on the ground. And this sight elicited a response within him. And that response was to take his own life. That response came from deep within his own uh, nature, his own person. 
was to kill himself. And why was that? Because he would have assumed that those people within the jail had acted upon their nature just like he would have done, and they had fled. Right? I mean, that's what he was expecting. So his response was, I'm going to die. He was brought to the place where he understood that death was imminent, and there wasn't a thing he could do about it. And so in the flesh, he figured, I'll take my own life so I don't have to suffer at the hands of the authorities when they come and see that I have failed at my job. And so he got to that point. He was, he was afraid. He was scared. He didn't want to uh, go through that. So the only recourse to him was death. He was going to die anyway. He was brought to that place in that moment where he knew that he deserved death. But we notice here in verse number 28 that Paul and Silas interject. Paul and Silas interject. Verse 28, But Paul cried with a loud voice, saying, Do thyself no harm, for we are all here. We are all here. He was, he, he was brought to the place where he understood that he deserved death, that he was going to die, and that was it. And then a call of hope rings out. The voice of Paul saying, wait, understand, prison keeper, that we are all still here. Understand that every prisoner is accounted for and that death is not, uh, is not something that is coming to you today. It was the message of hope. Message of hope. He hears it first. It comes into his ears. But again, because of the darkness of the prison, he can't see. He can only see a little bit around him. And so we see in verse number 29, then he called for a light and sprang in. He called for a light. He said, let me see if this is so. Let me, let me test this out. Let me try this. I've heard the message. Everybody's here. Now let me see it for myself. He comes in quickly and he can't believe his eyes. That God has worked miraculously in this time to make these men act against their nature hits him hard. Now he may not have understood all of that, but it hit him hard. Why were these men not running? Why were they not fleeing? Why was Paul and Silas uh, still there? Why were they singing praises? All of this, and God began to powerfully work upon the Philippian jailer. Actually, he already had been since Paul and Silas had been singing when they were fast in their stocks. It's an amazing thing. God I'll use the word orchestrating, planning, and purposing all of these events to bring the Philippian jailer to this point where he understood that he deserved death and death was coming to him no matter what. And then now to the place where he sees the light and the light shows him that he doesn't have to die. This has a powerful impact upon him Spiritually, because everything that he's experiencing physically, he also will experience uh, uh, spiritually, as we'll see. He could hardly believe his eyes. As he saw this and he came under the power and the work of the Holy Spirit, uh, he began to understand that he himself was a sinner and he deserved death. But seeing that light began to repent of his sins. I believe that because in verse number uh, 30, he asked this question. Well, excuse me, in verse 29. And then he called for a light and sprang in and came trembling and fell down before Paul and Silas. And brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? He understood at this point that he needed salvation. Right? Physically, he needed salvation before. That had already been provided. Right? He was delivered because everybody was still in their place. Still locked up, so to speak, by the power of God. But now he is saying in verse number 30 that based on all of this, he understood he needed salvation from sin. He needed spiritual deliverance. He needed salvation that only... Jesus Christ could provide, as he'll find out in just a moment. 
So as he was brought to that place physically where he understood he would die now, he's also being brought to that place spiritually. Where he understands that, hey, I've sinned against God. Hey, I've done everything uh, uh, in my power to work against God, and I deserve death. A second death is coming, and it's real. How many of you here this morning are under, are under the power of the second death even now? And you, like the Philippian jailer, are in this place where you realize and you understand and you see that, hey, I deserve to die because I've sinned against God. If you haven't realized that yet this morning, realize it now. Because with all of the weight of Scripture behind me, I'm here to tell you, you deserve to die. Spend eternity in hell because of sin. That's not because I think I'm better than you or this church thinks that we are better than you because we were all in that same place. Just as Paul was on the road to Damascus, just as Silas was where he was when he was saved, just like we all have been. We were all there and we all deserved to spend eternity in hell. He was brought to that place you need to be brought to that place this morning. Stop fighting it and saying, but I do this. You know, when the Philippian jailer realized that everybody, everybody's doors were open, the bands were loose, I mean, he knew for a fact that death was coming. He knew it. You need to have that same certainty this morning for those of you that are without Christ. It's the best thing that can happen to you today. It's to feel the full weight of your sin and realize you deserve Death. Stop fighting against God and say, yeah, but I volunteer here. And yeah, I try to help out there. And, and hey, I don't uh, 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 you know, drink or smoke or I don't uh, go to excess or I've not killed anybody. I'm better than these people. You see that the, the Philippian jailer, none of that mattered. He knew he was going to die. And I hope this morning the best thing that can happen to you is that you're brought to that place too and you understand that you deserve to die the second death and to be eternally separated from God because of sin. He understood that and he saw that. And we notice in verse number 31 or 30, he asks the question, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Again, he's not talking physically. He's already been delivered from death. Physically, what must I do to be saved? How many here need to ask this very question this morning? How many here need to say uh, uh, unto us today, I understand that I deserve to die. I understand that death is imminent. It is uh, beyond question. I need to be saved, but what must I do? There's some here that need to ask that question. There's some here that need to pose it. And that need to say, what must I do to be saved? Realizing you're lost. Realizing you're in your sin. Realizing that you deserve that death. He asked here such a powerful and profitable question. Indeed, what must a man do to be saved? What actions are needed? What work must be done? What are we responsible for? And really it's a universal question because everybody, everybody as they're born into this life is born into sin and into this second death. It's a question that each one needs to ask and has been asked many times before. And we see, for instance, in Acts 8 and verse number 35, we'll flip over there just a few pages in Acts. We see essentially the Ethiopian eunuch ask Philip the same question. Verse number 35 of Acts, chapter number 8. Then Philip opened his mouth and began at the same scripture and preached Jesus, or preached unto him Jesus. As they went on their way, they came unto a certain water, and the eunuch said, See, here is water, what doth hinder me to be baptized? That's essentially the same question. He's saying here, What do I have to do to be saved? Salvation comes before baptism. And Philip said, if thou believest with all thine heart, thou mayest. He gives him the same answer that Paul and Silas gives unto the Philippian jailer. 
And as you turn back to Acts 16, we'll see that. Acts 16, verse number 30, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? The answer comes back in verse number 31, And they said, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved thy house. So what is the answer? What has God provided, and, and what must man bring to the table? Is there any part of salvation that God has not provided for? Well, what must man do to be saved? And particularly to the men, we like action steps. We like to see a problem and then be told, okay, if you will follow these steps, you'll remedy that problem, right? We like that. We like to know if something's out of whack in our home, we can, uh, uh, you know, we can take these steps to remedy it, fix the leaky faucet or or whatever the case may be. We like that. We like to know what steps there are. So we ask that question. What must I do to be saved? Now in answering this question. I want you to turn back to our anchoring text. In Hebrews 7. In verse number 25. Hebrews 7.25, as we think about now uh, the Philippian jailer's situation, him coming under conviction, seeing himself as a dead sinner, asking the question then, what must I do to be saved? Is there any part that the Philippian jailer will be responsible to bring to the table? Is there anything in him that he is to give? Is there any work that he is to do? Is there any action he is to complete? Well, what does this verse tell us? We've already read. Hebrews 7.25, Wherefore he, again that is Jesus Christ, is able also to save them to the uttermost that come unto God by him, seeing he ever liveth to make intercession for them. Here we find the word uttermost once again. To answer this question, the word uttermost really uh, uh, is the answer. The word describes for us the commitment and provision of God for our salvation. The word uttermost delivers that to us. His commitment and provision. Now the word uttermost means extreme. Or being in the, the furthest, greatest or highest degree. Most extensive degree or simply fully. When you think about the word uttermost, it brings to mind uh, uh, to the highest degree. Or to the furthest extent. So that there isn't anything possible to go further. That's what uttermost means. And so here, when we are told that he is able to save to the uttermost, that shows us the commitment and provision of God for our salvation. What does that leave for us to do? If there isn't any further to go, what are we to provide? If there isn't anything further to do, what can we do? If there isn't anything further to accomplish, what are we to accomplish? What was the Philippian jailer to do? Now the phrase to save here in this verse is used absolutely, which means that Christ saves in the most complete, comprehensive sense that we can imagine, that we can understand, providing everything that man needs to be saved, and he saves them to the uttermost or greatest degree as well. It shows us that God is so committed and has so provided for our salvation, there's nothing left for us. And let's, let's think about that in the example of the Philippian jailer. As the jailer stood ready, if you think about it, going back to Acts 16 again, and uh, retreating back up to... Verse number 27, there's a big difference between the Philippian jailer in verse 27 and the Philippian jailer in verse number 30, 31, right? In verse number 27, he awakes, and as he wakes up, he's the same Philippian jailer that he has ever been. He has the same nature he was born with, he has the same sin that he inherited from his father and, and, and that he got from his father before him. He was the same man that he's always been in that respect. 
And as we see him ask the question in verse 30, and Paul and Silas respond in verse 31, he's changed, hasn't he? What made the difference? What did the Philippian jailer do as he asks that question? We're going to ask a few questions of our own uh, in response. As the Philippian jailer stands ready in verse 27 to take his own life, the power of God intervened. Paul and Silas called out to him, if that had not happened, if Paul and Silas had not spoken, called out, the power of God had not given them voice to do so, the Philippian jailer would have died with his own sword and hell would have been one soul more occupied, so to speak. But that wasn't to be. Because he was one of his. And so at that moment, when he was about to take his own life, God said, no. And he calls out to him. See, even at that very moment, before the Philippian jailer has even begun to turn his mind, his attention, his heart, anything towards God, God was already acting and intervening on his behalf in this situation. As he was still as sinful and as depraved as he had ever been, as he was ready to fall on his own sword, God was already working. We could back up further and say, even as Paul and Silas were standing before uh, uh, that uh, uh, a court of elders and being beaten, God was at work on behalf of the Philippian jailer. Go back further than that and say, as that demonic possessed woman was Annoying Paul and hindering the work. God was at work for the Philippian jailer. As Paul and Silas had set sail from where they were to come uh, uh, to meet the Philippian jailer. God was at work getting the Macedonian call at the beginning of chapter 16. God was at work. Who was doing it? God. He was at work. He was calling. He was bringing it all about. He was providing so question one, I already sort of answered it. But did the jailer seek God of his own accord? Some people will say that. What must a man do to be saved? He must seek God. Was the Philippian jailer interested at all in God before the moment that the earth shook? And he felt the power of God on his life. No, he was not. He didn't care a lick about God. He was only interested in keeping the prison and living his life. Not at all. He wasn't seeking God, nor could he. He was moments away from opening his eyes in hell after falling on his own sword. That's how little interest he had in God. That's how little interest he had in God. The uttermost salvation that God provides includes drawing us. Drawing us when we are not at all interested, even in the things of God. Now some of you are here this morning and unsaved, and because you have relationships with others, because uh, you know it's a good thing to do, you come to church and you hear the preaching of the word of God, so you have somewhat of an interest. There's somewhat of an interest there. But you know what? <laughs> you still need the power of God to come unto you like this, or you'll stay in that condition. You'll stay in that place just like he would have. If it was not for this intervention... He would have died on his own sword. Some might say that all you, all you have to do is seek a little bit. Start towards God. Do a little. Show him some interest or whatever. Fan that flame. Whatever the popular verbiage is today. And now it's God that does the work. It's God that intervenes. It's God that shook him. And woke him up. And made him realize he was a dead man. Unless something changed. Unless something changed. And then he called out. So question one, did the jailer see God of his own accord? No. The uttermost salvation meant that God was already seeking that jailer long before the jailer ever was interested in God whatsoever. And the same is true for any of us that are saved here today. Question two, did the jailer respond because he believed already or because he was smart enough uh, uh, so to, to figure it out? The answer to that question is no. It's not what he had to do to be saved. The power of God gave him that ability, strength, and desire to investigate the message of Paul and Silas. Let me ask you this. These two men were brought in 
to the jailer. They were criminals in his eyes. He knew probably nothing about them. All that he knew was that they had been convicted of a crime, beaten, and cast into prison. Why would he listen to them? Why would he trust them? I mean, prisoners, right, are, they're all innocent. Nobody ever committed a crime, right? And, and so why would he trust a prisoner's word? Why when the earth shook and he woke up and he saw that and he was about to plunge that sword in and kill himself and he heard a prisoner call out to him and say something, why did he stop? Why did he give any weight to what Paul said to him? Why did he change what was in his nature to do and what he knew was going to happen? Why did he change that? What gave him the ability to do that? Well, the power of God and working in the Holy Spirit. It's the only way he could have. Otherwise, he would have just ignored that message, ignored that call, and shoved it right on in. But we see he didn't. It was God that was at work in that too. That he was working within the jailer now, so that when he heard that call, it had weight. It had gravity. It had a pull to him. He didn't know. He still couldn't see, and so he didn't know if it was true, uh, uh, you know, and that, but, but he wanted to hear more. He wanted to see more. He wanted to, to learn more, right? And so the jailer didn't respond because of something that was in himself, but the power of God led him to investigate the message of Paul and Silas. He did not yet believe in Christ, had not yet come to God, but he was being pulled towards that wonderful message that he had heard. And he was being drawn away from himself. And himself, he knew death was, was imminent, so, so his nature said, just die. And he was being drawn away from that as he put down his sword. And as he went towards the voice and the message of Paul and Silas and asks for the light, he's being drawn towards God. Who's doing that drawing? It's God. John 6, 44, Christ said, No man cometh unto the Father. Well, that's John. <laughs> Let's turn over and read it. I just quoted the wrong verse, sorry. I love John 14, 6 so much that uh, I just misquoted John 6, 44. John 6, 44, Jesus Christ says, No man can come. To me, except the Father which has sent me, draw him, and I will raise him up at the last day. No man can. Not even that Philippian jailer. He would have just continued on his path and done whatever he was going to do to himself, the hair, except that God drew him away from that, called him away from that, and towards the message and the grace and the hope that would be found in it. See, God's at work long before we even have any kind of uh, interest in God. The uttermost salvation moves us away from what's natural and it moves us towards God. That's true for every one of us that been saved. Question three, did the Philippian jailer just simply decide it was time to repent? You know, did he just simply say, uh, you know, I, I've got to follow through with this religious uh, uh, thing? Well, Paul and Silas never told him to do that. But as he investigated the scene, he found that the message that he heard was true. It was real. It wasn't a lie. So first, he simply hears. <coughs> he simply hears. We are all here. Right? Do you remember the first time you heard the gospel? And you heard that Christ had died for you. Maybe somebody told you. Maybe it was in passing. Maybe it was a Sunday school lesson when you were young. And then you heard it again later. See, this man, he heard the message first. But then as he springs in, God drawing him, asking for the light, he sheds the light on the subject. And what does he see? He's able to see that everybody's there. He's able to see that what was told him is true. The further he investigated, the more veracity he found in the claims of what I'll say is the gospel message. It's how God works in our lives and drawing us to salvation. He gives us the ability to overcome our nature. Though we see that we are deserving of death, he gives us the ability to hear the 
salvation's call and the power of the gospel acts upon us to draw us away from our nature toward God. And as we do so, we investigate, we hear more, we, we see more, and, and we come to the point where we realize, hey, I'm a sinner. And if we realize we're a sinner, that brings us to the point, brings us to the point of repentance. He, through exposure to the truth, is able to begin to see who he was. Before, he was blind, but now he could see the light making all the difference. The jailer being quickened to see who he was in the light of God and who God was in this place. What a powerful thing. Romans 1 in verse number 16 tells us that the uh, gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And he experienced that power here. What must a man do? We see that he just didn't simply decide that he was a sinner, but God had shown him that. Question four, did the jailer of his own power and accord decide he needed then to be saved? Again, the answer is no. The uttermost salvation brought the jailer to the end of himself to see that he needed something that he could never provide, that he could never do on his own. He was brought to the end of himself, and that's what led to the question. He was brought to the end of himself, and he realized there was nothing he could do. Nothing. He was a dead man. He realized he needed saved, but he also understood in that short period of time by the power of God and working of the Holy Spirit that there was nothing he could do. He was helpless. Helpless. So that's what led him to ask the question, then, sirs, how, how does salvation come? How can I be saved? Still putting it in the terminology of himself doing something because that's what made sense, but he knew he couldn't do anything. How does salvation come? How is this possible? How can this be? He knew he needed something he could never provide. He needed salvation from sin, from God's wrath and the wages of sin, which is always death. So in asking this question, he throws himself at the mercy of Paul and Silas for sure, but, but God uh, primarily. And the answer that they give him there in verse number 31 is the answer, only answer we can still give today as to simply point people to Jesus Christ. Say, look, you're at the end of yourself. You've been drawn away from that nature and, and all of that, and you know that there's nothing you can do. All that's left, all that's left is to believe in Jesus Christ. Believe that he died upon the cross to save you from your sins. God gave him the ability through quickening to see that he needed salvation. Do you need that today? God provides it to the uttermost through Jesus Christ. That's a blessing. Question five, and it'll be the last one we ask. That's his own question again. What must I do? What must I do to be saved? Even the quickened sinner will still be tempted to think that there's an action he hasn't thought of or something to do. Realizing at the same time that he can't. What's left? If there's not an action and none of, the, none of the things I can do are good, how does conversion come? Once quickening has happened and, and someone's been made to realize these things, how does salvation arrive? Some still think that a work must be done, a good deed, a lifestyle change, an arrest of sinful behavior. But the uttermost salvation has provided all of that. All of that. The answer is found just simply in verse number 31. They said, believe. The word believe should always be equated very closely to the word faith. How does salvation come through faith in Jesus Christ? He had already experienced the repentance. Here they're directing him to Christ by faith. Directing him to Christ by faith. So then, some would say that God brings you all this way, and then it's up to you. Some would sit back and they would point and say, okay, God did all of this work for the jailer. Saw that he was deserving of death. Brought him to the end of himself. Showed him he could do nothing. But now, God says, it's up to you to believe. No, that's not it either. It's not it either. Because in the uttermost salvation, God provides for that too. 
God provides for that too. That's how uttermost it is. Can't think of a better scripture to conclude with in Ephesians chapter 2. God provides for that faith, that belief, that they directed him to Christ by and through. That's how invested. That's how much provision and committed that God is to our salvation and to the salvation of the Philippian jailer. Now, do you think that God would have arranged all of this, including Paul and Silas coming and hearing that Macedonian call, being brought to Thyatira, and from there uh, unto Philippi and these things unfolding and the demon and being uh, cast out and then accused and thrown into prison, shaking the prison and keeping all of the prisoners in place. Do you think that God would have worked to bring this man to the very point where he was at, giving him nothing to do himself, no hope whatsoever, and then leave him all to himself? Say, now figure it out. Now muster some faith. Now, now drum it up within yourself. Now we see in Ephesians 2. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that, not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God has before ordained that we should walk in them. We are saved by grace through what? Through belief. Through, through faith. And that faith, that doesn't come from us. Man, naturally, that Philippian jailer, he had no ability to believe. He had no ability to have faith in Christ. That faith was given to him as the gift of God. That he would be able then to believe and trust in Christ for his salvation. That Christ had died for him and paid for his sins on Calvary. What a joyous thing. So this verse shows us where faith comes from. Like the rest of salvation, it is a gift of God given to us for our own salvation. That uttermost salvation provided for by God through Christ. What a blessing it is. So then what part of our salvation does God not provide? No part. God provides it all. God provides it all. What part is left for us or what part is solely ours? None. It's all of God. That makes it an uttermost salvation truly to every degree. Oh, certainly it does involve us and we do act. Philippian jailer did all sorts of acting. But it's all provided by God. It was all worked by God. Praise God for that today. And I pray that those that are here this morning in the condition that the Philippian jailer found himself in as he was asleep on that uh, jail room floor or wherever it was, if you're in that condition today, I pray that the Holy Spirit will fall upon you now and will shake you just like he shook that, shook that priest. That he will wake you up to your condition that you're a dead man. Or a dead woman, or a dead boy, or a dead girl. And that you need salvation from that dead uh, estate that is upon you and will end in death. That the only way that salvation can come, the only hope is through Christ. Believe in Him today. Not in yourself, not in society, not in church, not in religion, not even in the Bible itself, but believe in Christ. Be saved. Can you do that today? Ask yourself that question what must I do? Simply believe. Let's stand. We'll ask for the bill to come. And we'll conclude with the verse of song here this morning. The Lord spoke.